Today we are in Luke chapter 10, verses 9 through 16. Well, let me read from verse 1 down to verse 16 by way of context. This is what God's word says, beginning in Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Amen. Let's pray together. O Lord, as we have opened your word now, we ask that you would open our hearts, prepare it, and help us to receive by faith and in humility the truth of your word. And we ask that you would reveal your glory through the preaching of your word until every heart confesses Christ as Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Last week we began our time opening up to chapter 10 in which Jesus sent out 72 of his disciples, commissioning them to go into every town and village and preach the gospel there. And the message that they were to proclaim is summarized in verse 9, say to them, the kingdom of God has come. Because, well, the king has come. He is here. His name is Jesus of Nazareth, and he is calling sinners to leave their sin and follow him into eternal life. And this is the same message that Jesus calls his church to proclaim today, to announce to the lost world, exiled and alienated from God, that there is hope for the forgiveness of sins and hope of returning to God's presence and re-entering his kingdom. Because again, the king has come down from heaven to pay for the penalty of our sin on the cross for all who confess their sin and turn to him by faith. And so this sending out of the 72, as we talked about last time, was like a microcosmic nascent form of the Great Commission, which Jesus would formally decree later in Matthew chapter 28. 
And as such, the principles of Jesus' instructions here to the 72 are equally instructive to all of his disciples in all generations, including us today here in the 21st century church. And last Sunday, we only looked at the first half in verses 1 through 8, and today we finish up the rest of Jesus' words, the remaining half in verses 9 to 16. And here we find a vital lesson for our instruction. Because it has to do with the reality that although... We toil and labor to tell the world of the truth of the gospel, pleading with souls to receive Christ as Savior and Master. Many, if not most, reject it. It's a sad matter of fact that countless sinners refuse the gospel when it is presented to them and choose to remain in their unbelief. Now, what are we to do about it? What are we to make of it? Well, to be sure, none of this is surprising to God. He knows the hardness of a sinful heart better than anyone. And he also knows how easily we can get discouraged when encountering hostility or apathy towards the gospel, despite our labor of love in sharing it. And so as Jesus was sending out his 72 disciples here, He preemptively anticipated such situations and included in his instructions a word concerning when a listener rejects the gospel. And here Jesus gives two addresses, one directed to the church, to believers, and the other directed to non-believers. And well, first Jesus speaks directly to his disciples and he offers them encouragement, which is simply When people reject you, and they reject the message you proclaim, don't be so distraught. Just move on. It says, verse 10, Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Now, we saw something very similar to this back in chapter 9 when Jesus sent out the twelve. That when they don't receive, you shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. As, and as we learned back in chapter 9, this was a symbolic gesture of that day and the culture to say, it's out of my hands. I'm not responsible for this. Even the dust of the town that's on my feet, I shake off to say, I have nothing to do with your rejection and unbelief. Again, in our culture, we tend to express this with our hands like this. But for them, in the ancient world, they did it with their feet. And the important observation here is that Jesus himself is acknowledging you're not responsible. Don't worry. Don't fret. If you've preached the message faithfully, then I give to you this confirmation. Well done. Good and faithful servant and the rest of it their response or lack thereof it has nothing to do with you now remember success in evangelism is not based on if the gospel was accepted but if the gospel was presented every time you faithfully deliver the message you have succeeded in accomplishing god's will through you even evangelistically 
Because our job is simply to sow the seed, and it's God's job to grow the seed if it be His sovereign will. And this biblical philosophy of evangelism is vital for us to understand and operate accordingly, both in our personal lives and also in how, go- how it governs the church's ministry. Because first of all, as individual believers, knowing this actually frees us to proclaim Christ all the more. Because if all it takes is simply communicating the message and God will do the rest, well, our job is not that difficult. No one fails to evangelize for a lack of ability or giftedness. It's entirely based on willingness. And if we are met with rejection or apathy, Jesus says that the burden of the repentance and faith is not ultimately on our shoulders. It's on His. And so if those to whom we minister the gospel do not respond favorably, we don't need to sit there and wallow in a puddle of failure and wonder if we botched this golden opportunity and perhaps if we had been more eloquent, if we had been more articulate, if we had been more learned, that the outcome would have been different. No, if you faithfully presented the substance of the gospel, then God already has used you. He is pleased with you and you can move on regardless of the outcome. Look, can I just say something? If anything, I sometimes feel that the gospel is better carried on your lips than on mine. I'm not saying that this is, you know, I'm trying to get away from evangelizing. That's not true. But what I'm saying is that over the years, I found that as a pastor, I have a tendency to have this cluttered mess of theology and apologetics and polemics just swimming around in my head 24-7 that I sometimes struggle to communicate the gospel in a simple, straightforward fashion. And it's happened before that I'm talking with a non-believer and when we get to the question of, okay, well, who is Jesus? I have this wide open lane to go for it and the first thing that pops into my head is Jesus. God, eternal and man, hypostatic union, two natures, Two whole natures in one person, indivisibly, inconfusedly. No, it sounds very confusing, actually. But this is what's in my head sometimes. And some poor soul just wants to know who Jesus is. And my jumbled, useless brain is about to shoot a massive brick. I mean, thank God I usually don't end up going there. But I'm just saying that's what pops into my head. And I have to do so much work to declutter that mess. Look, you think knowing theology makes you a better evangelist? Sometimes... It can detract. Sometimes it can clutter the mind and obfuscate the plain, simple truth. But when I hear some of you say, you know, I met with this person this past week and I don't know, I just, all I, all I could do was I just told them, you know, I'm a great sinner and you're a great sinner, but Christ is a great savior and he died for sin. He can save you just like he saved me. How refreshing. I need to learn to talk more like you. Look, the point is every Christian is fully capable of proclaiming the gospel to the world because you're simply proclaiming the gospel that has saved you and given you new birth in Christ. It's not complicated. And if people reject it, you don't have to sulk and shame and failure and wonder if you could have been better. You've done the job well. And you can move on. Now, of course, this doesn't mean to give up on the person at the first sign of resistance. Jesus is not talking about a cold, 
loveless evangelism that just dispenses of truth and never follows up, never pursues the soul with the tenacity of love. Now, if anything, heeding Jesus' instruction will produce greater resilience and perseverance in our evangelistic efforts. Because the more we apply this principle, the more courage will be built up in us. Now, how so? Well, let's face it. The number one thing that dissuades us from opening our mouth and speaking the truth in love is the fear of offending people. And what often happens is that when people react to our message with offense or displeasure, we instinctively wonder, oh no, did I, did I do something wrong? I, I didn't mean to give a personal offense. But Jesus tells us in verse 16, the one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you is not rejecting you, but rejecting me and the one who sent me. In other words, Jesus is reassuring us, don't take it personally. No matter how much they think and feel that they are offended by you, Jesus says, it's actually me whom they're offended by. This resistance, this rejection or hostility, or even apathy. It's outside of you. It has nothing to do with you at the end of the day. You're just a messenger. The real problem is the hostility of the hardened heart against the author and sender of that message. And look, the more you believe this, the thicker your skin will be to handle through the discomforts of relational tension and to persist in speaking the truth. And love. The greatest act of love you can do is to warn souls of their perilous spiritual condition and point them to divine love himself who has made a way for rescue and hope through his son. You know, even if they don't see and understand the love and compassion from which you speak the truth, know that it is objectively the most tender act of love that you can do provided that it is delivered with tenderness and love. Now, perhaps some of us here are too delicate in our conscience. And as soon as there's any kind of pushback or some offense taken, we believe we're being a bad friend, bad neighbor. But you can't let the unbelieving world train your conscience. You can't let a blind man convince you that the sky is green. You must train your mind with the Word of God. And the more we fasten our minds with Jesus' words, the more we will bolster up the courage necessary to weather through all kinds of unpleasant reactions when presenting the truth of Christ. And in the same way, the ministry of the church must be governed by the same resilience and fortitude before the world. You know, as basic as it is, do you realize that probably the, the major reason why the church has so diluted the gospel at this point is because of a failure to heed this principle, that we are to just preach the unadulterated truth, and if the world doesn't like it, then that's that. Let it be. Don't bend the message to make it fit in with popular culture and ideology. It doesn't fit. It's not meant to fit. So stop trying. 
The gospel is countercultural by definition because it is the message of God's kingdom breaking into the kingdom of this fallen world and the reign of darkness and evil. Thank God it's countercultural. Thank God it conflicts with this world lost in sin. The gospel is meant to go against the grain of this world's thinking and perspective. That's the very hope of it. And so don't sugarcoat the reality of sin to make it more palatable for sinners whose biggest problem is their sin. To, to refuse to acknowledge the problem is to withhold the only solution. If you stop talking about sin as a church, then you will stop talking about the Savior, even if you use His name every Sunday. Because He has come to deal with sin. That is the very beauty and the hope of the gospel. That's what makes the gospel such good news. That God has made a way to save us from our sin. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. We must preach the truth for what it is. And leave the results up to God. But you know, even in subtle ways, the church has often strayed from this basic mindset. This is why in the modern world we have so many ministries that have very little substance in the preaching of the word. Such shallow theology. Even if they are orthodox, and instead so much energy is focused on the theatrics, the concert-like atmosphere, the melodramatic, the hypnotizing music, where the chorus is repeated 37 times. My goodness, if I were in there, you'd make me do anything just to get you to stop. And then that song ends, and the next song happens, and the next song, the chorus is repeated 38 times. It's just droning on over and over again. It's like an incantation. And all of these embellishments are designed to lull the congregant into some spontaneous emotional response. Because what we want more than anything is just the outward appearance of results. So we can keep getting the people to attend. Have this big production. And boast about the membership count. But what good is that if it's all just a bunch of psychological, emotional manipulation by human cunning, but all along, the Spirit of God was not at work to supernaturally impart new birth in Christ. Now, of course, I'm not saying that emotions are bad. Like, I am emo, okay? I have yet to find a man more emotional than I am. Okay, I'm not some rock or lifeless robot saying these things. But deep affections for Christ, tears of thankfulness and praise, the intensity of love and passion for Him, these are the fruits that must arise out of a deep-seated root of God's Word planted firmly within the soul and is being given supernatural growth by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Let me put it this way. The Holy Spirit does not need a dark room with stage lights and an electric guitar solo in order to accomplish his work. His word is sufficient as he ministers to us by applying its truth, searing the word into our hearts, which then generates the true warmth and heat in the soul. Far more intense and lasting than all the theatrics and sensationalism conjured up by men. You see, all this reminds us that the gospel is sufficient Preach it as such. And if the listener doesn't respond favorably, that's okay. Leave it up to God. 
Our job is simply to protect the purity of the truth and to proclaim it in its undefiled glory. And if we will have done that, then we will have served him well with our lives. And so this is Jesus' instructions to his disciples, to the church, to believers. But starting in verse 13, he directs his attention to those who do not believe. And he says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But it's going to be more bearable in judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. Now, what is Jesus saying? What's so wrong with these cities that he has such grievances with them, even to speak such harsh words? Well, the woes that Jesus issues are directed to these three towns, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Now, we know Capernaum, if you've been with us throughout our study through Luke's Gospel, that Capernaum was a bustling town on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, which was essentially Jesus' headquarters. He spent the most amount of time there in his ministry throughout Galilee. And Bethsaida was another town just a couple miles from Capernaum, and Chorazin was probably in the same way in the vicinity as well. But why does Jesus cry woes upon them? Because Capernaum, being the headquarters where Jesus had spent the most amount of time, the residents there naturally had the most amount of opportunities to see Jesus, witness his miracles, and to hear the truth that he was preaching to them. And Bethsaida, along with Chorazin, given that they were neighboring cities to Capernaum, likewise, the residents in those cities were also graced with ample opportunities to behold the undeniable truth of who Jesus is, the Son of God who came to draw sinners to himself. And so Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, because... If the mighty works done in you, and they were done in your viewing and vicinity, far more than in the other towns, if the same miracles testifying to the truth had also been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented a long time ago. But you have yet to repent, because you are so hardened in unbelief. Woe to you. Now look, Tyre and Sidon, They were not exactly godly, spiritual cities. These were Gentile Phoenician cities along the coast. And if you read Isaiah 23 and you read Ezekiel 26 to 28, the people of Tyre and Sidon are not portrayed as a humble, repentant people. Rather, they are seen as a vicious, proud, carnal, godless people. These were wicked people pagan towns. But Jesus says, you, Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida, who had the privilege of all of your access to the truth, you still don't believe? You still reject the truth? Even the wicked pagans would have believed by now if they had the opportunities and the privileges that you have. 
they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes as an expression of them mourning over their sin in humble confession and repentance. They would have had a radical conversion by now. And so Jesus says in verse 15, Capernaum, you think you're going up to heaven? You're going down to hell. That's what Hades is, hell. Now these are some strong words. But don't miss the particular angle of his words. Jesus is not saying this to the lawless and the godless scoundrels of the world. He is saying this to those who are otherwise civil, mannered, religious even, who are willing to hear his words regularly, but not willing to embrace the truth and bow the knee to his lordship. And this is just talk. Look what he says in verse 12. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town that has heard the preaching of the truth from his disciples but rejected them. It'll be more bearable for who? For Sodom. Remember Sodom? Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19? These two cities were so depraved and wicked that they had become like barbaric animals in their thinking and behavior. Their basic humanity had corroded so badly by unrestrained sin that God had to send fire and sulfur down from heaven to purge their spiritual toxin, their their very existence out of the world for the sake of the rest of the world. God destroyed them as an act of common grace for the rest of human civilization because they were so wicked. And so he burnt it up because it was unsalvageable. That's Sodom. But Jesus says that for those who had the privilege of hearing the truth, seeing its power, and yet still persisting in unbelief, they will be placed in the hotter zones of the fires of hell. And even the wicked people of Sodom. Wow. Now that is a warning. Now you might be wondering, well, are there degrees of punishment? Yes, there is. In much the same way as there are degrees of reward, you see Jesus talking about various rewards that would be given to different believers. Now how does that work? Well, look, in heaven... Every believer, every child of God in heaven has the maximum enjoyment and delight in the presence of God. As Psalm 1611 says, in your presence is the fullness of joy. So no person in heaven lacks anything in heaven. Well, if that's the case, how do degrees of reward come about? Well, taking the two together, we could surmise that it means that for those whom God rewards more, their capacity to enjoy God is enlarged. That while every believer in heaven has maximum capacity, or their capacity is filled to the brim of their soul in delight in God, those who have the greater reward are given the greater privilege of being able to enjoy God to a greater degree. It is as it were, our sensory receptors will be heightened as a reward. Because the glory of God is so infinite and inexhaustible 
that there is a possibility for the capacity of the soul to be enlarged. Well, if that's the case for heaven, what does that mean for degrees of punishment in hell? Every unbeliever, every rebel suffers in maximum unending torture and agony in the wrath of God. But for those who have the greater judgment, their capacity to experience the severity of the wrath of God is increased. And that greater judgment is on the Capernaums of the world, not the Sodoms of the world. Do you know what he's saying in today's terms? He's saying judgment upon the godless, vile criminals in the Tenderloin District in San Francisco or in Compton, L.A. will be more bearable, hear it now, than for those who sit in the pews of churches in San Ramon, who have received the gracious opportunity and privilege of hearing the word of God, being surrounded by God's people, reaching out to them, who attend the church week in and week out, but they remain unconverted and hostile, resistant to the gospel and unbelieving deep inside. They may even be studying and learning the Bible, always learning, but never able to arrive at a living knowledge of the truth. Because deep in their hearts, they reject Jesus as Lord and Master and King and Savior. Why is the judgment harsher for them? Because with great spiritual privilege comes great responsibility. To hear the truth, to hear it repeatedly, but to reject it is to spit in the face of God willfully. It is a greater act of defiance and rebellion. You know, read through the Gospels, and you'll notice that Jesus reserved his harshest words, not for the tax collectors, not for the prostitutes and all the broken sinners, but it's for the religious people who had all the access to the Scriptures. Every opportunity granted to them to hear Jesus preaching in the synagogues, to get front row seats, because that's how they did it. Right? The, the bit better your standing was in the religious community, the better seats you got. Now it's the other way around. No one wants to sit in the front. Maybe it's because I spit too much. But even though they had that VIP front row seats, they hardened their hearts against him. And that's why Jesus reserved his stricter, harsher words upon the self-righteous. Look, if you're here this morning and you have not received Jesus Christ by faith, no matter how many church services you've attended, no matter how good you think that you are, Jesus is speaking directly to you. And He is telling you, in hearing this truth, you must accept that you are responsible. And if not, you face the harsher judgment. And this is a loving warning that Jesus gives to you to help you wake up. This is not a threat. This is a fire alarm to send you running from the flames to the safety and refuge of Christ. It's not a threat because, look, you're already condemned. It's not that hell is God getting His revenge on you because you offended Him by rejecting His gospel. No, as sinners, we are already all hell-bound for our sins. That is our woeful spiritual condition and destiny as sinners before the holy and righteous God. 
And no amount of good works or merit can earn our way into his presence of perfect sinless purity. And if, if you refuse your only hope of rescue and salvation, then you're simply choosing to remain in your already condemned state. But here he is, lovingly warning you. The very act of warning is out of his desire to rescue you. Offering himself freely, announcing to the world through the lips of his disciples to come and trust him to save you from your sin. Now you might say, well, reading this passage, it sure looks like they got to see a lot of Jesus' miracles. In verse 9, he said, heal the sick. Well, maybe if I saw that, I'd change my mind, but I don't see that. Well, first of all, that's not true. The Pharisees and religious leaders of Jesus' day saw more miracles than you could ever dream of. Blind people receiving sight instantaneously. The lame who had no legs to walk, leaping for joy. The dead raised to life. Everything. And yet it speaks to the hardness of the human heart that they only rejected Him all the more every time they saw His miracles. Evidence is not the problem. There's plenty of evidence. Your rebellious heart is the problem. But you're not honest with yourself. As Jesus said, the one who rejects the messenger rejects him. Look, if you walk away from, from all of this saying, you know, this is all just a bunch of nonsense. Don't think that you're rejecting me. These are not my words. Don't just blow it off you're, like you're rejecting, tossing out some stranger's opinion who gets up every Sunday and talks your ear off. These are not my words. Be honest with yourself that if you reject this, you reject God, the author of the message. And secondly, you want to see the sick healed? Well, look, God has given you ample testimonies of His miraculous power that exceed the wonder of all the healing miracles that Jesus did. Because here in this church are some of Jesus' disciples Believers who once lived a life of pursuing sin, who didn't care about God, who once rejected the gospel just like you, and yet they are here, converted, changed, born again by the power of God with a new heart. There was no human contrivance. They weren't manipulated into becoming a Christian. But here they are, living, breathing, walking miracles, who can testify By his wounds, I have been healed of the greatest disease of sin. The people of God are the chief undeniable testimonies of the verity of the gospel. And it's all here for you. You who are listening, God has given this to you. What good reason do you have to reject the gospel? Have you considered that God brought you here this morning by His providence as an act of immense love and kindness and grace to you that you would hear the truth just once more and believe it and so be saved unto eternal life? This is God's gracious heart toward you. You see, when Jesus says, Woe to you, He is not cursing you. Again, you're already under the curse of the law. But this word woe is an expression not of castigation, but of lamentation. 
It is not a cry of divine hatred, but of divine grief, as it were. Out of his compassion for your lost and ruined condition and the eternal wrath that is in store for you. Because he doesn't want you to bear it. Because you can't bear it. He wants you to live. It's just as he spoke to his prophet Ezekiel. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn to me, for why will you die? And so Jesus says to you this morning, why would you choose to remain in your sin and die eternally? Suffer the wrath of God. Come to me, confess your sin, and trust in me for the forgiveness of your sins. Non-Christian, the woe that Jesus speaks is not a word of hopeless condemnation, but a word of gracious invitation to believe that he suffered and died on the cross in the place of sinners to atone for the sins that we could never atone for. And today, if you hear His voice speaking into your conscience, do not harden your hearts. And church, if our Lord has such compassion and grief for perishing souls, should we not be the same? And the instructions that Jesus gives to His disciples regarding shaking the dust off their feet, the takeaway for us should not be to have a calloused heart when preaching the gospel and be utterly indifferent when people reject it. No, those instructions were given to instill in us resilience and unwavering conviction and to entrust the results into God's hands. But none of that is to the exclusion of the great love with which we are to plead with souls over and over again if necessary. Because you see... Paul obeyed Jesus' instructions here, later in Acts chapter 13, verse 51, when the Jews of Pisidian Antioch rejected the gospel with hostility. And so it says that Paul and Barnabas, they shook the dust off their feet as a testimony against them, and they went to the next town, Iconium. But listen, it was the same Paul who did that, who also wrote in Romans chapter 9, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish because my fellow Jews are in unbelief. And you know what Paul says? He goes so far as to say, if it were possible, speaking hyperbolically, if it were possible, I would choose to be cut off from Christ for them so they might receive Christ. This is the true Christian spirit with respect to the unbelieving world. A deep compassion, pity, and love. And if we do not possess such a spirit, then we must confess to God our lovelessness, the callousness of our hearts, and ask Him to soften our hearts and make us more like Jesus. I have to ask this often. We must ask Him to give us both the courage and the love necessary to carry out His will, to carry the gospel to this dying world. As Charles Spurgeon once said, if sinners be damned, 
At least, let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. May God help us to be such loving heralds of the gospel that we might reflect the person and character of Christ, our Savior. Let's pray together. Our holy God and Father, we are so grateful that you are merciful, that you are just and you are merciful, that you are righteous and gracious, that you would find a way to punish sin and yet rescue sinners by putting the sin upon the shoulders of Christ your Son and that you would punish Him in our stead. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to see the great love with which He poured out His life and that you would fill our hearts with that same love for this lost world and that you would use us to carry this gospel the gospel of power to save sinners to all those around us. And Lord, we ask now that as we prepare our hearts to receive your supper, that you would bless this ordinary bread in the cup, that you would set it apart to minister to us, to remind us of the preciousness of the death and resurrection of Christ. And that we would proclaim it, not just in our taking of the bread and the cup, but with our lives and with our lips. We ask this in his most precious name. Amen.